Well, good morning, everyone. So, um, I got asked last night to fill in, and um, I'm happy to do so, um, because today is actually my very last Sabbath here. Um, we are heading out on Monday, so um, I hope it's okay with you if I don't teach from the quarterly. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do um, an overview of the book of Daniel. So, um, we're going to do an overview of the book of Daniel. If you wanted to participate in the lesson study about patience, there's three other classes that you can do that in, just so you know. So, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we will get started with our, with our study here. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, this Sabbath day to study your word. We thank you that we can study from the book of Daniel this morning, and I pray that you would give us guidance and wisdom as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, well, I'm kind of happy that I get to teach from the book of Daniel this morning. It was a last-minute thing. Um, so, I've been studying Daniel again over the last couple of months and going through some things. And um, we're going to look at some of the big-picture ideas. We're not going to necessarily spend time on one particular detail, although there's plenty of things in the book of Daniel that you could do that with. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to probably spend a good amount of time in the first six chapters looking at the lives of Daniel and his three friends and how that applies to the prophecies in the last six chapters and to God's last day people. So, you know, we know some of the basic stories, and so I'm just going to look at some of the basic things, but then hopefully shed a bigger application as we go through here. So, in Daniel chapter 1, as we look at this overview of the book of Daniel, actually before we even get into chapter 1, looking at the big picture of Daniel, if there was one word that you would use to describe the book of Daniel, what is, that, what is the word that you would use to describe it? Or to describe the book of Daniel, what's one word that you would think of? Prophetic. Okay, prophetic. That's, not, that's a good answer. Any, any other ideas? Judgment. judgment. That's the answer I was thinking of. Now, why would you say judgment? Right, so the name Daniel itself means God is my judge. So that's an interesting name to have. You, you know, Hebrew names were chosen very carefully. And Daniel's identity, his name, was shaped around the idea that God is my judge. And so whenever Daniel heard his name, he was always reminded, God is my judge. And so, that's the first thing that we see. So when you look at the book of Daniel, you're going to see the idea of judgment come out very strongly in this book. And we're going to see a number of things. So the idea of the book of Daniel is judgment. And what we're going to see in the first six chapters is how to live in preparation for the judgment. The last six chapters, as well as chapter two, give us an understanding of what precipitates the judgment and what brings the judgment to a close. And some of the, who the key players will be, 
with respect to the judgment. So then when you get to Daniel chapter 1, the beginning of the book, you see that Daniel and many others, including his three friends, are carried into captivity to Babylon. Now, this would have had to have been very hard to take if you were living in Jerusalem and you have a self-understanding that you are God's chosen people and God has delivered his chosen people time and again, although by this point God's chosen people are living in utter apostasy, worshiping idols, um, things of that nature. And, and so all of a sudden, here you go, knowing that you're God's chosen people to being carried away in captivity. And that had to have been, um, for some people, a very hard thing to understand. So here you see these young men and the Hebrew people taken into captivity. And now you see that they are living in the kingdom of Babylon. And here in the kingdom of Babylon, these young men are brought to a test right up front in their experience. And the very first thing we see is they are tested about the food that they would drink and whether or not they would partake of the, of the wine of the king's table. We know this story. Um, the bottom line is, verse 8 we see, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat nor the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And without spending too much time on this, you see that Daniel had purposed in his heart. That means he had decided ahead of time that he was going to be faithful. So when the crisis came, they had been taken away into captivity into Babylon. The crisis comes and Daniel and his three friends stay faithful. So the first thing that we see in the book of Daniel with this understanding of judgment, with the understanding, the concept that God is judge, is that Daniel and his three friends had purpose to stay faithful ahead of time. And if we wonder what's going to happen in the crisis that lies ahead, if we don't know what we're going to do, if we haven't thought ahead of like, what would I do if I was faced with a situation? More likely than not, you'll just kind of go with the flow. And you had Daniel and his three friends who stayed faithful. Now, they were not the only Hebrew captives in Babylon. And yet the great majority of the Hebrew captives compromised and so therefore God was not able to use them. It's interesting, you get to the end of Daniel chapter 1, in verse 17 it says, As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And, and then you see um, that they were ten times wiser um, in verse 20, and they, they sat in the court of the king. Now, it's interesting, because these young men were faithful, God gave them 
an extra blessing. First of all, they had extra knowledge, extra wisdom. But in verse 17, we see that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So what kind of a gift did Daniel receive? Daniel received the gift of prophecy. So not only did they have extra understanding and wisdom, Daniel was given the gift of prophecy. So here's, here's an interesting application for living in the time of judgment. Daniel and his friends were faithful to the health message. The health message that helped to distinguish them as a peculiar people. They stayed faithful to the health message and God therefore gave them the prophetic gift. And specifically Daniel received the prophetic gift. Now if you look at God's last day people living in the judgment hour, God has also given us a health message. If we heed the health message that God has given us, we may not have visions and dreams like Daniel did, but God has given his last day prophetic people the gift of prophecy through the writings of Ellen G. White. And in order to understand the health message, you read her writings. So it kind of goes together. And with that, then not only comes an understanding of the health message and the understanding of the writings of Ellen White, but I believe that God has given his last day judgment our people an understanding of the prophetic messages in Daniel and Revelation. So if we choose, like Daniel and his friends, to be faithful to our health message, to the identifying characteristics that help us to have clearer minds, then God will bless us with an understanding of the truth of his word. Now it's interesting, as you continue on in Daniel 2, and we're not going to go through the details of the image. I mean, we know head of gold is Babylon, chest is, is silver of, for me to Persia, the, the thighs of bronze are, are Greece, the legs of iron are Rome, the feet of iron and clay represent a divided Rome, including Europe, but also the the mixture, the attempted union of church and state that did not come together, it tried to. It's interesting that this prophetic vision that was first, that, that first really ident identifies what would happen at the end of the world is first given to a pagan king um, named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And it just so happens that Babylon is the same name of the power that will be the major force at the end of time. And God chose to reveal to the king of Babylon what would happen from his kingdom down to the end of the world and how, in essence, Babylon would still be present at the time of the coming of Christ. So it's sort of like God is saying, okay, Babylon is the beginning of the prophetic kingdoms. I'm going to reveal my will to Babylon so that those who are in Babylon will have an opportunity to come out of it. And he started with the king of Babylon. And that shows the love of God that he, he reveals his will first to the people that are identified as being on the wrong side of the issue all the way down to the end of time. And he's like, no, that's not where you want to be and I love you so much, come out of that. And he uses a Hebrew captive, Daniel, to explain this message 
and this understanding to the king Nebuchadnezzar. And it's interesting, if you look at the image, you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then papal Rome with the iron and clay. Then you get to the book of Revelation, and you have in Revelation 13 and 17 the description of Babylon. And you have this composite beast in Revelation 13, which is the composite of the beast of Daniel 7. And what you end up seeing is, is that each kingdom in the image or each kingdom in Daniel 7 or Daniel 8 contributes to the Babylon of end, of end time. So you have elements of ancient Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome within Babylon. And you ask, well, what are those elements? Well, Babylon obviously was the head of gold. And the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the way Babylon thought when Nebuchadnezzar was king is the way Babylon will think at the end of time. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar was like, is not this great Babylon that I have built? So pride is a huge element of Babylonian thinking. Then with Medo-Persia, you have to remember their laws were unchanging, which are characteristics of infallibility. They say, whenever we make a law, it doesn't change because it's a good law. And, and the papacy today says, whenever the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he never errs. He's infallible. So the Medo-Persian idea of infallibility or unchangeability comes down through time. And then in the kingdom of Greece, you have Greek philosophy, human reason. Um, this is where higher criticism and all this intellectualism has come in that tries to take down the Bible. You see that through Greece. And then with Rome, you see the persecuting power of the military. Um, using persecuting force and all of those come together in last day Babylon. So you see that in Daniel chapter 2 and, and God chose to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar and then he glorified himself by hiding it from Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men of Babylon and revealing it only to Daniel. So then we come to the end of Daniel chapter 2 and we see that a stone will strike the image at the end of time and um, We'll probably talk about that a little bit later if we have time. As we continue through the book of Daniel, we come to Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel chapter 3 gives us the first clue to how Babylon responds to a prophetic message from God. So God sends a prophetic message and says, there will be kingdoms that come after Babylon, after the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, no, um, Babylon will last forever. We'll just make an image of gold completely. And, and so they build an image of gold. And it's interesting, you know, you can read through Daniel chapter 3. The, the image was described, and I don't have the verse right in front of me, but it, it was a very tall yet narrow image. And if you, if you think about the building of this image, one of the things that would come to mind is, is like, this image would not have been built overnight. It's not like you're here in Loma Linda and then you wake up one morning and there's this tall image in the middle of the campus. I mean, that just wouldn't have happened. They had to have built the image, which means that Daniel and his three friends who knew the prophetic interpretation of the image of Daniel 2 saw 
that Nebuchadnezzar was defying the prophetic message that was given in chapter 2 by building this image in chapter 3. And obviously that had to have been disappointing to, to um, these young men because Nebuchadnezzar had seen the power of God, the miracle, the miraculous power of God in allowing them to explain what the image of Daniel 2 is about. And now they're de Nebuchadnezzar is defying that message. And so, again, in Daniel 3, we don't see Daniel in the story, but we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had time to think about what was going to happen on the plain of Dura. It wasn't like, boy, I wonder what's going to happen. He's building this image. I mean, th these guys were in the kingdom of Babylon. They knew what was going on. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar was going to call people together and have them worship the image and bow down to it. They knew that. And therefore, they knew ahead of time, just as they did in Daniel chapter 1, what they were going to do when the test came in Daniel chapter 3. Now think what would have happened if they had started partaking of the wine of the king's table and the food from his table. It would have been like, oh, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. You know, we're still going to worship our God, but, you know, we don't want to hurt the king's feelings, so we don't want to cause any trouble, so we'll just do what he says here. And then it's like, oh, well, there's going to be this um, worship of an image, but, you know, we're still going to worship our God, but we'll just bow down real quick, but we don't really believe what we're doing. We'll just kind of bow down and nobody will notice and whatever. Um, and yet the Ten Commandments are very clear. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. God is the only God, the only one to be worshipped. So the, the issue of the Ten Commandments was clearly on the line here of bowing down to other gods. And we know the story. <clears throat> and if you look at the scene, it's interesting. Um, looking at the people who were there in Daniel 3, verse 3, you have princes, so you have royalty, governors, political leaders, captains, military leaders, judges, you have the ju judicial authorities, treasurers, so the financial leaders, counselors and sheriffs, which are law enforcement, rulers of the provinces, local political leaders, all of these were gathered to the, for the dedication of this image, which gives you the idea that of the then known world, you had all the key leaders there. And in verse 4, it says, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages. You have this idea that it wasn't just a few people from Babylon that was, were there. It was like people from the surrounding nations had come together for this special event. This was a major thing. And so the command is, when you hear, it's interesting in verse 5, all kinds of music that you fall down and worship the golden image. So it's like Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, let's have a little bit of music that will appeal to this culture and a little bit of music that will appeal to this culture and a little bit of music that will appeal to this culture. And it's like, and if we have all these different kinds of music that appeal to everyone, then everyone will feel comfortable in bowing down and worshiping. And it's sort of like the ecumenical movement today that says, you know, we, we need to have something for everyone to make them feel comfortable at church. You know, they can worship God in, according to the culture that they feel comfortable in. And that's what Babylon instituted at the very beginning as it defies the prophetic message of Daniel 2, that there would be a head of gold and a chest of silver, thighs and, of bronze and legs of iron. 
Babylon says, no, it's just going to be all gold, and we're going to have all kinds of music to worship however we choose to worship, even if the God of heaven says he's the only one that should be worshipped. And so all the nations and languages are there, and everybody bows down to this image except three Hebrew boys. And it just so happens that they could not have been the only Hebrew boys at that gathering. There's no way. There were other captives that were there, but those other captives were the same ones who said, oh, we'll eat the food from the king's table. So because of the unfaithfulness on the first test, when the bigger test comes, they're unfaithful again. Because of the faithfulness of Dan Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the first test, they're faithful when the next test comes. Now, here's something to think about as well. When you come to the image of Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar did not tell the people in Daniel 3 that from this point forward, you can only worship the golden image, and that's the only God you can worship. The implication is there is that just bow down to, to this image this time, but you can worship whatever other God you want to worship as well. So you can worship this image now in honor of me, showing that I'm defying the God of heaven, but you can worship your other gods when you feel like it later on. And we'll see that there's a progression, and we'll get to there, but in Daniel 6, remember what happens? A decree is made, you can only worship the king for 30 days, and you can't worship anybody else. And that's the same progression you see in the last days. It starts off with a Sunday law that says, well, you can still go to church on Sabbath, that's okay, but you have to worship on Sunday as well. But then later on, it's like, you can't worship on Sabbath, you can only worship on Sunday, and if you don't worship on Sunday, and if you're worshiping on Sabbath, we're going to kill you. So it's interesting, the stories of Daniel follow the progression of what happens in the last days for God's judgment on our people. So of course we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's like, oh, it's okay, you know, you can have one more chance and I'll let you bow down. And so now he's putting the political pressure, and they're like, hey, look, our God can deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship your image. Now, how many people today have that kind of conviction and courage to stand up for God in that manner? How many, it's, it's like people just tend to go with the flow, and it's like whatever people do, that's what they do rather than following a thus saith the Lord. And most likely, the other Hebrew people probably said of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they were perfectionistic and legalist. Oh, those people, they're just so particular. You know, they don't understand the grace of God. You know, you can, you can get away with stuff like that. God understands. But that's not how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived their lives with the understanding that God is my judge. So that's Daniel 3, and of course we see that Jesus came in the midst of the burning fiery furnace and was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and delivered them. Daniel 4, of course we understand Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his heart and God brings him down. And at the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar says, now I honor and extol the true God and call on all nations to worship him. It's interesting, we have reason to believe that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, which is very interesting that Babylon, which is representative of the last day entity that fights against God's people through whom the dragon works, yet 
the first king of Babylon will be saved in the kingdom of heaven. And maybe God will use some of us the way he used Daniel to save some of the pe people of our day that are in high positions of authority and don't know any better. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know any better. He wasn't born in, the, in a Hebrew family where he knew about the true God, and so he had to learn through other ways. But those of us who know, we have no excuses. We, we know who the true God is. Then you get to Daniel chapter 5, and after all that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and finally Nebuchadnezzar repents, Belshazzar says, you know what, I liked things the way they were when Nebuchadnezzar didn't follow God. That's the way I think Babylon should really be. And let's, let's do another defiance of, of God by using the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, and we'll worship the gods of gold, silver, brass, wood, and stone. Those, you know, those elements that were in that, that silly image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in some vision. Let's worship those gods, because those are the gods we're going to worship. Um, and so, in Daniel 5, what you see, in a nutshell, is the fall of Babylon. And this prefigures the fall of Babylon in the book of Revelation. And you see the comparisons in Revelation 16. Here in, in Daniel 5, the kings of Media and Persia came and took Babylon down. They were from the east. Revelation 16, when the seven last plagues are falling, we see that the kings of the east come as Babylon is falling um, to take down Babylon for the final time. So there, and the kings of the east, of course, are the father and the son. And more could be said, but I'll just mention that in passing. So here you see Daniel comes again and um, interprets the handwriting on the wall. Um, there's, I'm not going to take the time to explain it now, but the message meaning meaning has three components to it, which parallel the three components of the three angels' messages. Um, you have the sentence, the, I'm, and I'm not getting all, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but you have a sentence, a verdict, and then the carrying out of that verdict, the execution of it, and you have the same three components in the three angels' messages. Um, you have the judgment hour message, you have the message that Babylon has fallen, and then you have the message that if you worship the beast in his image, God will destroy you. And here you see in Daniel chapter 5, the fall of Babylon. After the fall of Babylon, we see that Daniel continues on in the kingdom of Medo Persia, and we see that he was elevated because Belshazzar says, if you can interpret this, I will make you third in the kingdom. Well, in Daniel chapter 6, we see that Daniel was first of the three presidents that were set over the kingdom of Medo-Persia, which would have made him second in line. So, Daniel 5, he was elevated to third in line. Daniel 6, now he's second in line. So, because of Daniel's faithfulness, he's elevated even higher. And, of course, imagine what the the leaders of the kingdom of Medo-Persia must have thought. They had, they had worked politically and otherwise to conspire to, br to bring down the kingdom of Babylon, and now they are the kingdom. And then King Darius sets some Hebrew captive as second in the kingdom over them, so they're not very happy about that. Um, that just shows, though, that God's faithful people, if faithful and 
uncompromising, can be put in high positions of authority, although in this day of politics it's hard to imagine a politician who's not somehow bought or sold by some special interest or something. But the bottom line of Daniel chapter 6, of course, we see the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And we see that specifically in verse 4 and 5, we see that these leaders of Medo-Persia, in verse 4, it says, they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. So the, the, the men of this earth, the leaders of this earth, they tried to find fault in Daniel, and they could find no fault in him. That sounds like a pretty good character to have standing in the judgment. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, no fault could be found in him. And so notice what they do in verse 5. They said, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now here's what they're saying. There's no fault in Daniel. We're not going to get him. You know the only way we're going to get him? Is if we make him choose between being faithful to the law of God or by creating a law that we will put up against his law. If we can do that, then we can find fault with him because we know that he will choose to be faithful to the law of God over any law that we make. And they knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians was unchangeable. So if you broke the law of the Medes and Persians, you'd get zapped. And so these guys obviously were smart guys. They were high up. And so they said, this is how we're going to get him. We'll make people worship the king for 30 days. The king will like that idea. Hey, everyone will just worship me for 30 days, and he won't realize that we're doing this to take Daniel out, and we'll get Daniel because we know he's not going to change. And this is what's going to happen to God's people in the last days. There will be a group of people who will be faithful to the Bible and every word that is found in it. And the people of this earth will be unhappy with us and they will look at our lives and they'll be like, you know what, we can't find anything against them. They're nice people, they always help out, they'll do whatever it takes to be nice. They've never done anything to, to slide us to, or to go against us. They're, they're very helpful, they'll do whatever it takes. And, but the one thing about them is, is that they always follow God the way he says. And we don't feel like we always need to. So the way to get them is to pit a law that puts the law of God versus the law that we create. And that's exactly what will happen with the Sunday law at the end of time. And you see the progression. Daniel 3, it's like, well, you, you can worship on Sunday, which you need to do, but you can also worship on Sabbath. But by the time you get to Daniel 6, it's like, no, you can only worship the way we tell you to worship. You can't worship God the way he asks you to worship. And if you do worship God the way he asks you to worship, we're going to put you to death. And so if you look at the progression, Daniel would never have gotten to the point in Daniel 6, where he would have been faithful to God no matter what, if he hadn't been faithful in Daniel, Daniel 1 over such a trivial, trivial issue as diet. Faithful in diet, God gives him the prophetic gift. Then he's able to reach out to the king of Babylon directly. Then there's the defiance of the prophetic message in Daniel 3, and they still stay faithful. 
even though they could have kept worshiping God the way they wanted to after that time, and they could have even rationalized, hey, we'll just pray to God that he'll forgive us for bowing down to the image, and then he'll forgive us after we do it, and then we won't have to worry about it anymore. They could have done that. And how many times do we do that to God? We know that what we're going to do is a sin. We know that it's wrong. And we do it anyway, saying, well, we'll just pray to God and ask for forgiveness after we do it. But that's not how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reasoned when faced with this test. And then by the time when you get to Daniel 6, it's like, look, you don't have the option of saying, well, if I, um, <clears throat> if I worship the way man says to worship, then, you know, I can just pray to God for forgiveness and it will be okay. Because in the end of time, that's going to be the dividing test between who's with God and who isn't. If you go with man's way at the end of time, you're going to receive the mark of the beast. So it's an issue of eternal life versus eternal death. It's not just like, well, we can get away with it. It's okay. What we see is that the little things early in life shape our characters for how we will make choices when eternal life is on the line. When all of heaven is watching to see what choices we will make, the choices that we've made early in life, will, be, will we be faithful when tested on a little thing? Maybe it's like working on Sabbath or not at our workplace or something like that. And it's like everybody else is doing it. You're the only Adamus that won't do that. What's your problem? Oh, yeah, we'll just get along. It's okay. And, but then you get to the point like, man, if I don't do what they tell me now, they're going to put me to death. And so you see the progression. And, of course, we know that Daniel continued to worship God. Nothing changed. And because of that, he was thrown into the lion's den. And it's interesting, you get to verse 16. The king was up all night, and in verse 16 he says, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel, cast him into the lion's den. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. This is interesting. Darius is saying, The God whom you serve continually will deliver you. So the king is exercising a statement of faith. And then after the, the night, in verse 20, he says, and when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to, to deliver thee from the lions? Now notice this. King Darius addresses Daniel as a servant of the living God. And notice how he addresses Daniel as a servant of the living God. He says, your God whom you serve continually. Now, this is a sort of basic point, but it has a lot of meaning to it. What does it mean to be a servant of God? It means to serve God continually, all the time, without exception, no matter what the circumstances are. You serve God continually because he is Lord of your life. And that's the way Daniel lived his life. Now, it's interesting... Daniel was a servant of God who served God continually. He was faced with these tests throughout the book of Daniel. And then you see the 144,000 in the book of Revelation who are described as the servants of God. They served God continually. And the reason why God will place his seal on the foreheads of the 144,000 as his servants is because he knows that when they are tested the way Daniel and his three friends were tested, 
they will live their lives the same way because they understand that God is judge. So the 144,000, they are the servants of God in the book of Revelation. They serve God continually the way Daniel and his three friends did. Here's another point to make about Daniel and his three friends because so many times Christians will say, is this a salvational issue? Is it really wrong for me to eat from the king's table? I mean, come on, God understands. I mean, there's even some vegetables in there. And, I mean, is it really a salvational issue for me to bow down to the image? I mean, God will understand. He doesn't want me to die. And, I mean, it, I'll ask for forgiveness. And then I can have influence still in the kingdom and show that, that I, you know, this is how it is to be a, a faithful Christian. But, yeah, I bow down, but God will forgive me for that. I mean, you've just lost your influence with the Babylonians. But, anyway. But then by the time you get to the test of Daniel 6, it's like an issue of life or death. What are you going to do? And, of course, it was an issue of life or death in Daniel 3. What was it about Daniel and his three friends? What was the motivating factor for the choices behind their decisions? If you look at it carefully, <clears throat> Daniel and his three friends clearly loved God. And when you get to the end of, of the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel in chapter 9 says, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. I mean, God loved Daniel dearly, and Daniel dearly loved God, as is evidenced by how he lived his life. But if you look at each choice that they made, the question that they asked when they made their decision was not, will I lose my salvation if I eat the food, or if I bow down to the image, or if I don't worship God during these 30 days? although that certainly was part of the package. The question that they were asking and the way that they were making their decision is, will God be glorified by the decision that I make? Will his name be honored or vindicated by the way I make this decision? And so every time in Daniel 1, in Daniel 3, in Daniel 6, God's name is always glorified or vindicated by Daniel and his three friends. So this teaches us a lesson about being God's last day people living in the judgment hour. Rather than living our lives like, will I lose my salvation if I wear clothes like this? Or if I watch something like this? Or if I eat something like this? Or if I hang out with people like that? Come on, I'm, I'm gonna lose my salvation for that. That's not the mentality of God's last day people who understand that God is judge and whom they love with all their hearts because Jesus died for our sins. Our question will be is, will God's name be glorified by the, through my life among the people that are around me and in the onlooking universe by the choices that I make? Or, or am I just looking out for, for myself like, am I going to be saved or am I going to be lost? Daniel and his three friends made choices that always brought honor and glory to God's name, and we're still talking about them today. The Hebrew boys who went with the flow and compromised, they're forgotten people. We don't talk about them. And God's last day people who will be unyielding and bravely serve God continually no matter what, even if our lives are on the line, those are the people that will be honored as the 144,000 throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. And God has made it possible for us to be among that special number of people. But in order to be part of that special group of people, 
we're going to have to have a mentality switch in the way we live our lives. Because so oftentimes, even Seventh-day Adventists live our lives saying, am I going to lose my salvation if I do this? Rather than like, is my life bringing glory and honor to God's name? That's why the first angel's message says, fear God and gl give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Are we giving glory to God in the hour of his judgment? Those who do will bring glory to his name. And because we bring glory to his name, God will put his name, his seal in our foreheads. That is what God is calling us to be. So when you look at the lives of Daniel and his three friends in the first six chapters, that is what you see. You see a group of young men who were taken from Jerusalem, placed in Babylon, and gave glory to God's name. Now please don't tell me that it's too hard in our day and age to live that kind of a life. These four young men were captives. They were slaves to the kingdom of Babylon, and yet they stayed faithful. And we have a modern Babylon that we're contending with. And in many ways, it's more subtle and more deceptive. The subtlety or the deception to think, you know, it's okay <clears throat> to inject our own opinions and, into the way the Bible reads. And we can pick and choose what applies to us. Some of that was just written for old times. And, um, you know, we can pick and choose um, whatever Ellen White says because, you know, she wrote over 100 years ago, and so times have changed, and so we know more than she does now. The devil is going to work through Babylon in these last days to deceive as many people as he can, the same way he worked to take out as many Hebrew captives back in the time of Daniel. But if we are faithful to every word of the Bible, and to the writings of Ellen White, we can be like Daniel and his three friends. And our motivation is not so that we will look good to other people. That's not our motivation. Because we love God for what he's done for us. And so all we care about is bringing honor and glory to, to his name. And uplifting his name and glorifying his name. We're not looking out for our own personal salvation. But God is going to save people who care more about the honor of his name than even our own salvation. Those are the kind of people he's looking to save. So in a nutshell, those are the first six chapters of Daniel. Now, we're not going to have time to look at the last six chapters. Sorry about that. Um, and this really is my last Sabbath, so um, sorry that we can't continue through Daniel any more than this. And this wasn't even going to happen at all, but... Suffice it to say, the last six chapters are the prophetic exposition of what will happen through modern-day Babylon, how God will preserve and protect his people, when the judgment will take place, when it will come to an end. And in a nutshell, you see that the judgment takes place because of the, of the four kingdoms. In Daniel 7, you see the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dreadful beast with the little horn. And because of the little horn speaking great things against God, then you see the judgment. And with the judgment, the judgment is given to the saints, and they possess the kingdom forever. 
Revelation shows us that the judgment can come to an end when the mystery of God is finished, which is the character of Christ being perfectly reproduced through the lives of his people. So the judgment begins because Babylon shows the characteristics of Satan here on this earth. The judgment comes to an end when God has a group of people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who give glory to God's name in the hour of his judgment. Then the judgment will wrap up and then we will see Jesus come back. That's basically what the last six chapters of Daniel are describing, and you have the time prophecies that outline the 2300 days that take us to 1844, you have the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335, and those are not reapplied to the future. Those were prophecies that have been fulfilled already and are not reapplied again to the future. So at the end of the day, when we look at the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is a book about judgment how to live in preparation for the judgment. How do we live in preparation for the judgment? We live our lives with the attitude that I want my life to bring glory to God's name. And if he saves me on top of that, praise the Lord. Rather than what's the least amount that I can do to get by and still get saved in the kingdom of God. And there's a big difference in, in the mentality and how we live our lives as we live in the judgment hour. So I hope that as we've gone through the first six chapters of Daniel, that this will give us something to think about um, as we live in the judgment hour. So we may, may we be faithful to God, and I wish God's blessing upon each one of you. As this is my last Sabbath school class here to teach. May God be with each one of you. May we be faithful, and may we be among the number that stand on the sea of glass someday soon. Thank you very much.